belongs to us, which is the very righteousness of Christ himself. We thank you that in heaven our test score is his test score. And we've become joint heirs with Christ simply by by accepting what he accomplished at Calvary when he died for our sins. We thank you for all things for the study before us today. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Wait for a clock key. Well, thank you for joining us once again. Welcome to Grace. And we're right back to our just kind of an off... Uh, an off study. We're going, doing a, conducting a journey through the Bible, book by book. And we halted that five weeks ago when we had an electrical strike near the studio, as most of you know. Took out most of our equipment. And, uh, Dan has been working feverishly and trying to get things up and running. And I think he's pretty much succeeded now. It's a matter of the internet company get, getting their equipment up and running. Uh, because their equipment was struck too, and everything coming into this building was fried. And they've run a cable across the street, but we're not getting a steady enough stream for for us to stream out live. So what's happening is it's another week, and they'll be doing some testing today while I'm speaking to see if the equipment is working. And if it is, then it's just the Internet company this week to be able to tie in, and we're back up and running. So thanks, folks, for being patient. It's been five weeks of just off-the-cuff talking about different topics. And today I want to continue with a topic we talked about last Sunday which was why it's so difficult and why man's mind takes him away from truth. You know, fallen man, and that took place with Adam in the garden, uh, fallen man has the tendency not to gravitate naturally toward truth. It's not evolution as we evolve upwards, as, uh, as the political correctness crowd would like us to believe. It's devolution. As mankind works downward, it's devolution, not evolution. And so our minds do not gravitate naturally to truth, they gravitate naturally to error. This is why Paul told us in 2 Timothy 2.15 to study, to show yourself approved unto God. Workman that needeth not to be ashamed, doing what? Rightly dividing the word of truth. So we're told how to study it. And the manner in which we study his word and come out with that, that, that work of faith, that labor of love and that patience of hope that Paul talks about is what will be judged upon at the judgment seat of Christ, often called the Bema, the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. Bema is the Greek word. All right. So this is where we are. Why do our, where do our minds take us when it comes to what we believe, our faith? Uh, they take us in the opposite direction that they should take us in. And so it's difficult sometimes to get men to think beyond the traditions of men. And every man, ha- everybody has their own traditions. Uh, you talk to somebody and they say, well, I'm a this. Well, what makes you a that? Well, that's what we've always been. My, my parents were that. My grandparents were that. So we're, boom, we're this. But then boy meets girl and she says, well, we're a that. And my grandparents were that. And my folks were that. So I'm a that. So what do they do? They often find a church which is not a this or a that. They find the other. And then they compromise. It's find a church that everybody can be happy with. So we're not going to his church. We're not going to the uh, belief system of her church. We're going to our church. And it'll be different from both. And it often is. Uh, So we want to see why the mind takes us in the wrong direction. I call it a study of superstition and the supernatural. And we're going to look at that in regard to what Paul tells us will be happening in the last days. Here in 2 Timothy, Paul gives his protege in the faith, young Timothy, call him his son in the faith. He gives him a little warning in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And there Paul says, this know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. Now, 
Every generation has suffered perilous times. Uh, We're not unique in that we alone are going through perilous times. Think about the days back when uh, when Hitler was in power and what was happening during the Second World War and and, uh, what was happening with the Holocaust. Um, Those folks would say they were living in perilous times. However, we're living in a day and age when... Nuclear power is at the forefront and nations are acquiring nuclear power all the time, it looks like, and threatening the use of it. So one mistake can change a lot of things and we're living when there is a religious battle taking place. It's always taking place because the Apostle Paul said, marvel not, don't be surprised, that Satan is transformed into an angel of light. He, What was his desire? To be different from or just like God. I will be just like the most high God. He wants people to think he is God. And so his ministers are transformed into ministers of righteousness. Now that's, that fools a lot of people. They're ministers of righteousness, not ministers of evil. So Satan doesn't have to worry about evil. What he planted in the mind of Adam and Eve there in the garden, back in Eden, uh, has played itself out through the downfall of man in that sin nature that we acquired from Grandpappy Adam. And Satan can, in a sense, sit back in his easy chair and watch the devolution of mankind as man's mind takes over. And instead of the fuel for the engine of our understanding being the word of God, the fuel becomes emotion. And Paul said that would happen. In the last days, people would heap together teachers for themselves wanting to have their ears tickled. Uh, translated, their emotions satisfied. So what happens in churches today? It's emotional. It's all about the emotional emotionalism of the moment to get people to feel good. When we go out the door, we feel good about ourselves. But the reality is, how much have we really studied the word? How much do we know of this word rightly divided? We should know all of it. None of it is is uh, pushed aside. Every bit of it's for our study. So this is what we're doing here. And Paul said, in the last days, perilous times shall come. And then in the same letter, the first letter rather, before he said that, he's telling us some things about what will take place. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. This is something that's more important than the Spirit just wrote it down or had somebody write it expressly. This is for our attention here. Stand up, Paul's saying. Sit up, take notice here. That in the latter times... Some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to, and this is key, the next two words are key words, seducing spirits. Seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So the seduction will take place in the area of doctrine. It'll be doctrinal seduction. And so people will be listening to things and heeding things that speak to their emotion rather than their reason. Paul would say, we're called to think today. Think on these things. Let this mind be in you. We're called to use our minds, but the fuel for these engines engines of understanding is the word of God, not our emotions. Uh, As I've often said here, emotions make a wonderful slave. They make a horrible master. So we don't revert to what we feel or what we think ought to be right. Uh, Well, this seems right to me. Don't go by that. Go by what the Bible says is right and you'll be on target. Uh, But seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, Paul talks about. And then he goes in there with Timothy to explain five different characteristics of religion in the last days. And religion, remember, in your Bible is not a good word. 
religion from the Latin roots re and ligio. Uh, re over again, repeat once again. Ligio, we get our English word ligament from that. And the ligament binds. So religion is about man's attempt, man's effort to keep himself bound back to a God who gets angry day after day according to our behavior. But God's never dealt with men according to their behavior other than through the law contract. When Israel was placed under law contract, he's dealing with men according to his grace, not their behavior. It's about man's belief today. So last day's religion, Paul said, will have the form but deny the power. And here he says, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. What is the power uh, of God to salvation according to the Apostle Paul? He called it his gospel. My gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believeth, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. What was Paul's gospel? Well, if you go to 2 Corinthians, it was Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But far more than that, Paul taught them how. That's the word hoti in the Greek. Paul taught them the full essence of what the cross accomplished where their sins are concerned. Now, if Jesus Christ came to take away sins by the sacrifice of himself, and this is review for most of you, um, How many did he take away and how many did he leave? Did he take away all the sins up until the time of his death and then all those future sins have to be dealt with? Or did he take away the sins of the world? The Apostle Paul says for God, 2 Corinthians 5, 18, 19, for God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their sins against them. And he's committed unto us that message to take to the world. Why is God not counting any sin against any person of the human race today? Because he counted those sins against his son at Calvary. When we say he died for our sins, we have to keep in mind that he died in our place, taking our punishment for our sins. For how many people did he die? John said for the, for the whole world. That's why he's not counting the sins of the world against the world. Verse 21 in Second Corinthians 5. For he, God the Father, made him, Christ the Son, to be sin for us. Christ who had no sin. So that we might be made. Now, this is the, this is the subjunctive mood. This is the possibility. So that we might be made the righteousness belonging to God Himself in Christ. So the secret, the Bible, the Apostle Paul called it the mystery hidden from ages and generations, till it was committed to His trust for us. The secret was how God was going to be to be able to look at me, and Dave. And the other Dave and John and all of us, how he was going to be look to be able to look at all of us and say. In heaven's, the court of of justice in heaven, you are as judicially righteous as my perfectly righteous son. Now, we know from a practical standpoint, we come far from that. So how is he able to do that and not be a liar? He did it through union. He did it through what we would call on an earthly scale, marriage. When you believe that Christ took your sins away at Calvary, he didn't take them away during your lifetime. You didn't have to come to get saved. He made a decision to save you before you drew a breath. And his decision was yes. In fact, all of humanity. It's now up to humanity to believe what Christ accomplished at Calvary so God, the Holy Spirit, can join those people to the person of the Son. That's the issue, folks. It's not your sins. It's the Son. The sin issue was resolved at Calvary when Christ put it away by taking the punishment that we deserve, that the human race deserved, where their sins are concerned. When you believe they were gone at Calvary, Boom, you are united. You don't feel it, see it, sense it, touch it, smell it. Uh, you wouldn't know what happened if the Bible didn't tell you what happens. The Holy Spirit joins you 
to the person of the son so that what belongs to him belongs to you. It's joint property law when you're one with the son. So when two became one, what belongs to Jesus Christ belongs to you. This is why the Bible calls you a joint heir with Christ. If you're a joint heir with Christ, what's his is yours. And what belongs to Christ when it comes to his test score in heaven concerning performance righteousness? He came to fulfill what? The law. He's the only one that ever did. By the works of the law, Paul said, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight. But Christ came and fulfilled the law. And he did that so that upon his resurrection, all of faith, the Holy Spirit could join to the person of Jesus Christ. So it's not about getting your sins forgiven. That was taken care of at Calvary. They were put out of the way, the Bible says, when he had by himself purged our sins. It's simply about taking him at his word. It's not mustering up a certain amount of faith so you can have a certain quantity of it and then he'll forgive you. It's not anything about that at all except taking him at his word. If he said, if the father said, I'm satisfied with my son did where your sins are concerned, it's about you saying, I'm going to take my stand where God takes his. If he's satisfied with what his son did with my sins, I'm taking my stand with his. That's faith in the word of God. That's faith. I'm believing what God says to be true. So when we do that, we have that instant joining to Christ and now we're worthy. Now we're adopted into the family of God and worthy of heaven. Uh, having your sins taken away doesn't make you heaven worthy. Uh, it just means he's not charging your sins against you. But having Christ's righteousness freely attributed to your account through that union, that's the other half of the coin. And so what would ministers of righteousness tell you? Your sins are still the issue. They weren't taken away at Calvary. I know Christ died for them. But they're not gone until you get them, God, and you've got to get God to forgive you for those sins. Some people say you've got to do it over and over and over again. If new sins require new forgiveness, others would say you only need to do it once and then they're all gone. But Paul says they were already gone at Calvary. All he's waiting for mankind to do is to take God at his word and believe him. Christ took your sins away at Calvary. All right. Last day's religion will deny the power of the gospel. They'll deny what Paul said, and that's what's happening when we're when we keep sins on the table of God's justice. If one sin of one individual today had to be forgiven, it would have to be taken off of that person and imputed to another person. Who would it have to be imputed to? Christ. You suppose he's going to die for any more sins, or did he die for all the sins that he's ever going to die for? He died once for how many, according to the author of the book of Hebrews? He died once for all. So, again, sin is your resolve, but... Last day's religion will deny that, and it's being denied daily all across the land. Second, last day's religion will take advantage of the weak. Paul said, for of this sort are they which creep into houses. Today that can be done with the internet, it can be done on the TV, it can be done on radio. Creep into houses and lead captive silly women. Now this isn't silly in the sense we think of the term silly. It's the diminutive form of woman, which means little women. It doesn't mean short. And it doesn't mean uh, silly in the way they talk or the way they act. That isn't the case at all. It's the diminutive form of woman, laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. Now, what's that all about? Well, being the diminutive form of woman, it's talking about a weakness of the woman. And what is that weakness according to the Bible? It's emotional weakness. It's not a weakness in the sense that they don't have emotions. They have emotional sensitivities that are heightened, their emotional sensitivities are much greater than the man in a general sense. Now, we're not, we're talking generally speaking. I know there's individual cases. Uh, but in reality, the emotion, the woman is far more emotional than a man. She has sensitivities, and it's a good thing. Men are told, according to the Apostle Peter, to honor that about the woman. 
her emotional sensitivities. We're to honor them in that which they have, which we need. We're more goal-oriented, more project-oriented, more get-it-done. Let's, you know, we're, and we live in one box at a time, so to speak. But women are in all the boxes at all times, and they're more emotionally sensitive. And so we're to honor that about them. Um, but that emotional activity will be what is played into, in the last days, by Satan. He's going to really work to get women to believe a false message. And if he can get the woman to believe a false message then where are the men going to go? Where are the woman and the children go? And so oftentimes there's a compromise made uh, for a false message just to, uh, because it satisfies the emotional sensitivities of the women. Unless the woman knows the truth of the gospel and then she'll be more emotionally sensitive in that area. Last day's religion, likewise ye husbands, here it is, dwell with them according to knowledge. Wisdom here. Where do we gain it? Right through the word. Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. She's not mentally more weak. She's not physically in every case more weak. Um, She's weak in the sense of those emotional sensitivities that God wired into her for a reason. And we meant her to honor that. Last day's religion will be unable to know truth. Ever learning, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 7. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So it's not about inspiration, motivation, which you can find in every book, in every Christian bookstore, and and all the TV channels. Ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. What is the truth of the gospel according to Paul? What happened at Calvary where our sins are concerned? Uh, So Bible study often takes a different tact, a different direction, but ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual. Paul told the saints in Corinth. They were carnal, fleshly oriented. Everything was occurring there in Corinth. Uh, from incest to uh, well, sexual sin, lying, stealing, cheating. Uh, these were a fleshly bunch. But they were in Corinth and they were called saints. Isn't that interesting? Christ died for their sins and they believed it. But they were fleshly oriented. Their behavior was governed by their emotions. And serving the lusts of the flesh. They wanted to serve those lusts of the flesh. He could not speak unto them as unto spiritual or spiritually mature, but as unto fleshly oriented, unto carnal, even as unto babies in Christ. I have fed you with milk, Paul says, and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear the meat. Neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet fleshly oriented. Uh, they were thinking of self first. Self was on the throne of their lives. And believe it or not, self is on the throne of all of our lives to some degree. Uh, to, to a great degree in, in actuality. Last day's religion will deceive by way of superstition and the supernatural. Superstition and the supernatural. And that's where I want to take it today. The fallibility of human reasoning. Where does man's mind take him? I should say, where do man's, our fallen minds take us? Where's the natural direction? Uh, well, number one, we talked about it last Sunday. We make something out of nothing. Um, statistic analysts would call this the clustering effect. Uh, you might think of a gambler, and he's been pulling that slot handle down at the, the casino all day, and all of a sudden he hits. Now, in that man's mind, what is he? He's a winner. What does he want to do? Let's go cash this in and put it back in the machine again. And he goes home a loser. Uh, But if you take not the clustering effect, but the overall, you're going to see that a lot of things we've reasoned in our minds to be true are not. Uh, Are more babies born during a full moon? 
Now you'd have you'd have a problem convincing a lot of nurses that no, that's not true, except this one sitting here that knows better. When births are measured across a long period of time, you broaden the horizon, you find out no, same amount of births. It's an average and it can stays pretty consistent. Not more boys than, than girls at during a full moon or vice versa. Um, we made something out of nothing. If I flipped a coin twenty times and it came up heads. 15 of those 20, you might think the next one should be a heads. You're going to bet on the heads. When reality, if I flipped it 150 times, you'd have more of an even flow. So we don't go by the clustering effect and just look at a small sample, which is what that's all about. Too much from too little. We make too much from too little information. We hear something and we think that's got to be true. And we take it as true without really examining further, the issue further. Seeing what we expect to see and seeing what we want to see. Now, those are very important. Um, someone once said, if I see it, I'll believe it. And that was true of Israel. They were always looking for signs, and so God dealt with them according to signs. As long as he dealt with the Jews, he dealt with them according to signs. But the opposite of that is just as true. If I see it, I'll believe it. If I believe it, I'm going to see it. And that's what happens in many cases. You see people building shrines to Mary because they've seen an image in a stained glass window when the sun's hitting it just right. And they say, that looks like Mary. Or in the pavement under an overpass. And they say, well, that looks exactly like Mary in that picture under the overpass. And they build their shrines. And you'll see everything from candles and flowers and teddy bears. I don't know how that fits in, but you'll find everything there. If we we expect to see it, we're going to see it. And if we want to see it, we're going to see it. How many remember the, the cheese sandwich, the toasted cheese sandwich? That What did it bring it on eBay? $28,000? Because in this grilled cheese sandwich was a picture, an image that the lady thought looked like Mary in the grilled cheese sandwich. And so she posted it on the Internet. She proclaimed how, how it brought luck to her. And that she went to the casino and won, I don't forget what that was, $40,000 or something at the casino. Then she sold the sandwich on eBay for 28000 Does that make sense? It brought you forty, but you're selling it for twenty-eight. Uh, so, you know, that, that sandwich brought $28,000. Seeing what we want to see. If we want to see something, we're going to see it even if it's not there. And believing what we are told. And this brings us into miracles and what we sometimes think are miracles. And sometimes we would proclaim that to be a miracle when a miracle is something totally out of the realm of possibility. It cannot happen apart from supernatural intervention. And so something happens. Maybe it's a healing. The doctor said this was here today, but the doctor told us next week it's gone. Or this week it's gone. It was there last week. This week it's gone. And that happens for believers and unbelievers alike. And it isn't someone stepping in supernaturally and taking it away. It's the course of human events and how things happen in the human body. You know, God designed this body. It's, it's a miraculous machine. Uh, you know, if we, if we treat it right and give it what it needs, the body can heal itself in many instances. Now there are diseases that you're going to need help with. Um, but you know, we don't eat right. We don't sleep right. We don't get the right amount of exercise. Um, you know, our minds are stressed out with everything happening every day. And then we wonder why we don't feel good. Why we're not sleeping at night. Uh, are we drinking enough water? We, you know, we wonder what's happening to our bodies when it's the natural course of human events. Uh, so we're going to look into this a little bit. Uh, more fully, this miracle thing, but how many believe at what they want to see? 
They expect it, and they and if they expect it, they'll believe it. Uh, I think you know what I'm talking about here. We don't have to go into. Uh, we can change the names to protect the innocent. Henny Ben, uh, here we have him. And everybody's you know looking upwards. As, you know, and I know it's a sense of sarcasm, and I don't need my wife gets on to me for this, but I always do it. Uh, like like Jesus is sitting in the rafters up there, and she's got a, got her eye on him, and he's giving her a healing. But the fact is, when you go to the healing services and you go back, as I did, a quartet member for many years of my younger life, you find the same people coming forward for the same healings. And you never once in one of those meetings seeing a guy from the service who's given his life, uh, not his life, but willing to give his life for the sake of freedom in his country, you never see one of those men with one leg walk into any of those healing services and walk out with two. You might see a row of wheelchairs that could be rented. And stacked up there. But do you see fake eyes drop down as somebody's got a new eye? Do you see all the glasses lying on the floor as people were healed from their, from their sight? I, you know, I shouldn't do it. Here I go again. Uh, it's like the miracle worker on TV calling up the stack of prayer letters to pray over those letters. Then asking for his spectacles so he can. It's like, what's going on here? You know, what are we missing? It's called, in, in that faith system, it's called multiple endpoints. Multiple endpoints works just like the horoscope. I'm going to give you a horoscope, and you think when you read it, wow, that fits me. But guess what? It fits your neighbor. It fits the guy who wasn't born in the month you were born. It fits everybody. It's multiple endpoints. Um, and in a, in a miracle service, it would be God's told me that somebody out there is suffering from a back problem. Now, I don't know how true this is, but are any of you in this small group here are any of you ever having a problem with your back hurting? But if God's told me that somebody out there is suffering from a back problem, who do you want that to be if you're suffering from a sore back? Why you want it to be you? And if you're not healed from your sore back, it's not my fault. It's not God's fault. It's your fault. You've got some unconfessed sin in your life or you don't have sufficient faith. Isn't that amazing? And so God doesn't know whether you have faith or not. But you can prove it to him. I'll tell you how you can prove it to him. There's some buckets up here. And as you come forward, drop your seed faith in the bucket. Or better yet, send it to my address because that's where God dwells now. And it's just all, it's follow the money trail, folks. It's follow the money trail. But how many people are sucked into modern day religion and modern day religion's message? It's rampant. Um, So believing what we are told, you know, when God worked with Israel under a law contract and then Jesus Christ came to the earth, a Jew under law, the Bible says he was born under the law, and his ministry was to whom? To everybody? I've come not but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul said, I knew him not, but that he was made manifest to Israel. Uh, Paul said, I mean, John said, I knew him not, but that he be made manifest to Israel. And that's why I've come baptizing with water. Water baptism was the way that God gave Israel under the law the manner in which to express their confession that they'd not kept the law. And they had sworn in Deuteronomy 6.25, they could keep it and keep every bit of it. In fact, Deuteronomy 6.25 says, And it, keeping that law fully and consistently, shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments as which he set before us this day. So Israel said, give us this law. We can do it. We'll live up to it. Watch us. And then you can count us righteous to the degree that we observe it. Uh, James told him the opposite. James said, if you fail in how many points? 
one point you have blown the whole thing out of the water. (laughs) And so Israel did fail. So the only confession you're going to find in your Bible when it comes to the confession of sins, there is no other confession of sins found in your Bible except for the nation's confession that they didn't live up to the contract. They swore they could uphold faithfully and consistently. And they've still got to make that confession before God will ever consider them a peculiar treasure unto himself and set them on high above the nations of the earth, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. But if I'm reading myself into what God promised a single nation, Israel, then I'm likely to call you guys a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Why, you're a royal priesthood. Sorry, you're not. That was offered to Israel as the Gentiles, when the Christ's earthly reign is set up, the millennial kingdom, the Gentiles are going to come to the brightness of Israel, the nations rising. Oh, they've fallen, according to Paul. They've fallen and they can't giddy up. (laughs) But... That was a sign. My wife's smiling. There's a sign on the the highway we go by every day. And it's a horse with with a big winnie. And he's, I've fallen. I can't get you up. So I thought that was cute. Anyway. Anyway. (laughs) Israel's going to rise. Have they fallen away so that they'll never be restored as a nation? No. Because prophecy tell us they, tells us they will be restored as a nation. God's going to gather them to their land that he promised them. And that's all the land that was promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not going to gather one or two in 1948 and then gather a few more in 49 and right on up till today. He's not gathering Israel today. They've not made their law failure confession. The nation must make a law failure confession. And when they're willing, when, when the leadership of that nation is willing to make that law failure confession, God's going to restore them. But it's going to take the seven years of what we often call the tribulation period to bring them to that point of making their law failure confession. We've not kept the law, and neither have our fathers before us kept that law like we swore we could keep it. That's the only confession for sins you're going to find anywhere in the pages of your Bible. And they didn't make that confession. And Christ came to tell them, you're not doing, why, what would be forgiveness according to grace? Forgive others, even as God for Christ's sake hath already forgiven you. How much, Paul, Colossians? Everything. But how, what was it under the law contract? To the nation. If you forgive others, then God will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, forget that forgiveness. God's not going to forgive you, in my loose paraphrase. That's not forgiveness out of the law, away from the law contract and under grace. So Israel had some things to do and Christ came to point the finger at him and say, you're not doing it. Weren't they asking him, how many times do we have to forgive? <laughs> and he said, this isn't, you, you've not done it. You've not. In fact, he came seeking fruit and that's the fruit of righteousness the nation swore they could perform through their, through their efforts, through their religious activities. And he said, I, I find no righteousness on the fig tree. The fig tree represents Israel in Scripture. I find there's no righteousness here. Unless you are more righteous, he told the Jews under law, than the scribes and the Pharisees, the strictest of the law keepers, unless you're more righteous than them, you're in no way going to enter that millennial kingdom that's been promised to you. So Christ came not to tell them what to do in order to make heaven. Christ came to tell them you're not doing what you swore you could do. And he called upon them to repent, change their thinking, not go in a different direction and start keeping the law. Repent, change your thinking, metanoia in the Greek. Change your thinking, Israel. You can't do it. No one. You're a fleshly creature with a, with a sin nature. You're never going to measure up to who I am. And my righteousness will not allow me to dwell with you if, you're, if you come short of who I am. 
So God had to make man in a judicial manner measure up to who he is to dwell with him. And how did he do that? Well, it's through that marriage, that mystery I was telling you about, that union with Christ. So when we hear something with these supernatural or superstitious minds that we all have, we believe what we're told. As though numbers is the key to success or to truth. Well, if more people believe it, I had somebody say, well, how many people do you have in your assembly? You know, because you're teaching something different than we're teaching in our assembly. How many people do you have? What can I say? Well, more than got on the ark with Noah. <laughs> but that's what I'm left with. Because they think if they've got 7,000 in Sunday school, then their way has to be right. How can you be right when all these people believe differently? Well, when we look at how many people got on the ark, it was only eight. It was only eight. Noah and his, his three sons and their wives. And so, it's not the majority that has truth. In fact, if what Paul's telling us true, is true, and it's not evolution but devolution, um, it's not the majority that's going to hold truth. It's the minority. When Christ came as a Jew under law teaching Jews under law, and they asked him, how many are going to be in that Millennial kingdom is going to be set up with you, ruling and reigning over the earth. He didn't say, wide is the way, and everybody has a big Schofield's getting in. He said, narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. So it's truth is not where we gravitate naturally. Our minds, because of Adam, our minds have a superstitious bent. And that superstition over time, has be, practice has become tradition. And tradition practiced long enough becomes religion. And so we want to hang on to the traditions of men rather than go to the word and say, what does it say to us while the new economy is in place? Don't go back to the law and think he's talking to you under the law. He's not. He was talking to Israel. Go back to the apostle of the Gentiles. Paul said, I'm the apostle of the Gentiles. So go back to what Paul wrote about this apostle, about this economy called grace. And see what Paul tells us. We believe what we're told, and we believe that agreement of others validates our view. NDEs, does anyone know what that stands for? Near-death experiences. Have you ever heard someone talk about a near-death experience well i died and when i died i went to heaven i know they brought me back with the paddles but i died and i went to heaven and this is what i saw and invariably you'll hear about the white light but when they put pilots in the centrifuge training them to fly these jets with all the g's they, they face as they're making a climb they train them to 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 control their body in a sense, and they wear special clothing too, suits, so that they're able to take more G's. And guess what happens as they begin to pass out from the speed of the centrifuge? The blood leaves the brain, and what happens? What do they see in many cases? The white light. But as soon as the thing slows down, the light goes away. So God has created the mind. God's created everything in here. And some people say would say, God gave us dying grace. Because, you know, even death, what happens? Well, the mind, I think, protects the person that's going through it to a great degree. And it's not something supernatural where God's reaching down and pushing a button and now you don't feel it. You know, death isn't the hard part anyway. It's the dying process that's the hard part. It's the illness before. Uh, death is simple. How many people have done it before us? Everybody. <laughs> and so near-death experiences, and then we listen to what others tell us and we believe it. And you've all probably heard it. I heard it numerous times. 
Well, does God raise the dead? Yes, he does raise the dead. Well, did you see him raise a dead person? Well, no, but I had an uncle who had a sister who had a second cousin. And that second cousin had a friend, and that friend had a friend, and they saw it. (laughs) And it's always in another country, but it's never here. And so... Um, when does death occur? Well, with our scientific equipment, we know when the heart stops. But what about the rest of the body? Do we know exactly when that death occurs? I just read something the other day that they're learning even more about that. And so, um, you know, we can't take what someone says. We've got to take what God says. They say has come to be one of the biggest liars of all time. <laughs> well, they say, well, who's they? <laughs> and where do they get what they said? 90 minutes in heaven. Anyone read the book? I've told the story. I did a conference in a quote-unquote grace church. And a lady came up to me afterwards and she said, have you read this book? And she had 90 minutes in heaven. By the way, the young boy who spent 90 minutes in heaven, his last name is Malarkey. (laughs) And she made the mistake of asking me what I thought about the book. And I said, well, it's full of malarkey. And... uh, she was angry. I mean, I she'd never, probably never come back to hear me. It was a stupid thing on my part to say that. But it, it's just full of, of junk. But she believed it. She said, you can't tell me this isn't true. This is a young boy, and young boys don't lie. Said, wow. <laughs> uh, the boy who came back from heaven. These books, Heaven is Real, they're all in the bookstores, and they sell by the, the gazillions. They make money. These are people writing because it brings them money. Here's the boy. Who went to heaven? What did he see when he went to heaven? And the doctor called it a miracle and he quoted back things and said his grandfather was there riding on a rainbow-colored horse. Now, the Rainbow Coalition wouldn't have any problem with that, but he was riding a rainbow-colored horse. He had wings. His grandfather had wings. Never in any case was a man ever given wings to become an angel. Although Highway to Heaven and uh, what was the other one? Stairway to something. Uh, they always have people earning their wings. But you don't become... There, there were never any baby angels. Never any female angels. They were always adult male angels in scripture. Nothing other. And so we have uh, a lot of things happening. And this boy said he went to heaven. Described his grandfather there. And sat on his grandfather's knee. And his grandfather, by the way, was a preacher. And every No, his father was the preacher. His father wrote the book. And he said, every time my daddy preaches, God would send lightning down from heaven. Does that bring anybody, question anybody's mind? And he said he asked if he would play could could play with one of the swords. I think it was Michael's sword. He asked if he would could play with Michael's sword, but God said, No, you can't play with Michael's sword because it's dangerous to play with swords. Now this is in the book, and people are believing it and buying it by the scads. The boy who didn't go to heaven nearly five years after he hit bestseller lists. A book that purported to be a six-year-old boy story of visiting angels in heaven after being injured in a bad car crash is being pulled from shelves. The young man at the center of the boy who came back from heaven, Alex, here it is, Malarkey, said this week that the story was all made up. He's older now. The book's publisher, Tyndale House, had promoted it as a supernatural encounter that will give you new insights on heaven, angels, and hearing the voice of God. But Thursday, Tyndale House confirmed to NPR, National Public Radio, that it is taking the book and all ancillary products out of print. The decision to pull the book comes after Alex Malarkey wrote an open letter to retailer Lifeway and others who sell Christian books and religious materials. It was published this week on the Pulpit and Pen website. I did not die. I did not go to heaven, Alex wrote. He continued, I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. 
When I made the claims that I did, I never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man can be infallible. This kid's got some wisdom now, doesn't he? He concluded those who market these materials must be called to change their thinking, to repent and hold the Bible as enough. Paul is the only man who ever talks about going to heaven and living to talk about it, other than Muhammad, who said he could talk about it. But notice what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 and 4. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. The word above is not in any of the texts. It's, I knew a man in Christ 14 years ago. If you go back 14 years in your Bible, follow the dating, Unger's dating, uh, guess what you find? Uh, you find Paul being stoned at Lystra. I knew a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth. So some people ask, well, I, you know, will I have consciousness? If I'm absent from the body and present with the Lord, will I have consciousness? Will I know it yet? Paul obviously did. In fact, you can have a dream so vivid that you think you're actually there. Uh, you think that you lived it. And some people have those dreams and afterwards suffer for maybe weeks because of a dream they've had. Paul couldn't tell whether he was in the body or not. He felt like he was, but he couldn't tell. But God knoweth. Such an one caught up to where? The third heaven. That's where God set up his throne room. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is, next four words, not lawful to utter. The only one who said he went to heaven and could utter them is Muhammad, the prophet Muhammad. And so-called Prophet Muhammad and all these story books written by people who want to make money. Paul wasn't allowed to say. So things can affect the mind and affect the mind in a great manner. Oxygen deprivation has been proven to affect the mind. The body chemistry, the chemistry God built into the body, drugs, anesthesia. Um, somebody said, well, I was, you know, I was close to death during that surgery and then I saw... You know, Uncle George, who died years ago, standing at the foot of the bed. Or I saw an angel standing at the foot of the bed. Someone might say, well, what drugs did they give you? Or what did you have for supper the night before? But pupil dilation, uh, hallucination. There's a lot of things to explain what happens to people, apart from it being the supernatural that's taking place for certain people and not other people. Agreement of others validates the position taken. Do numbers make it right? I think you know that's not the case, as we saw with Noah, as we saw with Christ when he said, few there be, or, or uh, narrow is the way and few there be to find it. Uh, religious persuasions can sway us. If we want to believe that the particular denomination to which we attend is the only right one. Why, after all, granddaddy was that, parents were that, so we're that. If we think that has to be the right one because that's what we are. That's how we grew up. Rather than what we are becoming what we believe, not what we are. Uh, we take names. And think about how that's built into young people today. Uh, when you're in elementary school, when you're in, in junior high and high school, I was a Zephyr Hills bulldog. And you're a Plant City pirate or a whatever. We learn to compete in ways from the time we're this high. We're competing through that separation process. And so our religious persuasion is right because that's where we attend and where daddy and granddaddy and grandma attended. And so that's got to be the right way. But what if they were wrong? How would you know? 
if your minister was one of these so-called ministers of righteousness, how would you know if I am not a minister of righteousness? There's only one way, and that's to go to the book. Paul tells you his gospel. You know, Christ died for your sins. He put your sins away at Calvary. Uh, he's not imputing the world's sins unto the world because he imputed them to the person of his son. That's either true or not. And if we take it for what it says, it's true. But I don't know of a religious persuasion that would be in the denominational realm that's telling you that your sins were gone before you drew a breath. Other than the persuasion called the universal Unitarians. You've probably heard of that persuasion. They believe that everybody's going to go to heaven and you don't have to believe a thing because Christ took your sins away at Calvary. But see, they missed the part of being joined to the one who took your sins away at Calvary. They missed the second half of the coin. Uh, you have to believe in order to be joined to Christ. And so having your sin slate wiped clean does nothing to put all the goodness belonging to Christ onto that slate. We, our sins were imputed to him. He died for our sins. He was raised for our righteousification, as I like to call it, justification. Just and righteous, same word in scripture. He rose so that we might be joined to him. We who? We who believe what he accomplished when he died for our sins. All right. Um, if your religious persuasion determined whether you were right or wrong, there are about 34,000 different religious groups in the world today. It's sort of like baptism. Um, if you believe in water baptism for today, and Paul says there's only one baptism today, and the Holy Spirit performs it, and it's not in into water, it's into Christ. You're immersed into a person today. But if, if you believe that your religious persuasion is right, and then you weigh that against all the other persuasions, you don't have the majority. Um, so, you know, the book of denominations is about that thick. And you can read it all taking various points of the Bible and basing their denominational belief system on certain aspects of the Bible without taking the whole Bible and seeing where things change. Now, the supernatural is going to be used in the last days. God, Satan is going to, to deceive people through the supernatural. How do we know that? Paul says it to Timothy. Now, in the same way, now as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses... So do these also, these of the last days, resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, reprobate, unapproved concerning the faith. Who were Jannes and Jambres? They were the miracle workers that when Moses and Aaron cast down their rods and they became serpents, Jannes and Jambres cast down their rods, and what did they become? Not rubbery representations bought at Walmart. They became serpents. The Bible says so. Whatever... Moses and Aaron did, through the miraculous, Jannies and Jambres counterfeited it. But the power source behind Jannies and Jambres wasn't God. It was Satan. How powerful is Satan? And Well, he was the sum total, according to Scripture, of wisdom and beauty. The crowning achievement of the angelic, angelic realm until he revolted or rebelled against God in the garden. And so, if the last day's religious leaders are going to do the same as Jannies and Jambres... They're going to deceive just as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses. Then we could expect that as the last days continues, people are going to be talking about miracles over and over and over. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to, here it is again, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. For the Jews require a sign. God gave them signs. As long as God was dealing with Jews who had been born under that law contract, 
he performed signs. You're going to see signs being performed performed throughout the book of Acts and by Paul. But Paul went to whom first? The Jews first. So as long as God was reaching out to those Jews who had been born under the law contract, those signs were being performed. But as Paul turned to the last part of his ministry, those Jews were dying out. Didn't he say that those signs would cease? The gift of being able to speak in a foreign language you never had to learn because of Jews coming to the area like at Pentecost... From all over the world, Jews were coming to that high holy feast day for Israel. And the apostles were able to speak in languages they never had to learn. Because God gave them that utterance to reach those Jews. And the Bible says every man heard them in their own tongue. And so Paul said whether they be tongues, they're going to be done away. Uh, Whether it be that supernatural gift of knowledge, it'll be done away. It'll cease. So... Faithful men are teach, to teach faithful men who teach faithful men today. Those gifts aren't in operation today. Um, for we walk by faith, the apostle of grace said, and not by sight. This isn't a suggestion. God isn't saying here, you're walking by faith, and I wish you'd quit looking at all those God winks that God's given you. Uh, one writer wrote the book called God Winks. He's on TV and several uh, talk shows. Uh, God gives you a little wink. You got the parking place, you know, Christmas Eve, right? The front of the parking, right? The front of the mall. But, you know, five other Christians behind you, they, they have to fend for themselves. You got the place. Because God was giving you a wink to show you how much he loves you. And people have said this. He's letting us know how much he loves us by doing these special little things. God winks. Or the famous expression today. You've probably heard it a hundred times. I have. That was a God thing. That was a God thing. Well, pity the people who don't get the God things, you know? Why us? Why is it a God thing to us? And there's other poor suckers out there who don't have the God things. It's the pride, and it's the pride of life, the Bible calls it. This isn't a suggestion. Stop looking at those little good things God's doing for you on a daily or weekly or monthly basis. You're not walking by sight because God's not giving you things to look at. Through the Apostle Paul and the change of economy... When we say, isn't God good? He doesn't want us to look at something that happened on Monday or three weeks from last Thursday. He wants us to look at the cross of Calvary. He's going to have nothing in this economy of grace supersede what Christ did for us at Calvary. When we say, isn't he good? Isn't he powerful? How about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? So we're to be looking at those things, not at little things that our emotions would lead us to believe through the superstitious thinking of the minds that fallen man are little tidbits from God to show us how much he loves us. Because while he's fixing your lawnmower or keeping your car running when you fail to put gas in it, I mean, it goes, the gamut goes a long ways, folks. Other people, you know, we, we thank him for our food, do we not? How many, to how many people did he give food? Everybody on planet Earth, if they can plant, and because the soil grows it. Um, and so he didn't, drive the delivery truck to your house and back it up and say, I'm going to provide your food today. Uh, he gave it to all men. Now, we're fortunate to live in a country that has a super abundance of it. And boy, when you go to these buffets, I like to use the statement, you know, I like the buffets because Paul said I buffet my, day, my body daily. <laughs> Paul said he buffeted his body daily. But, but look at the waste in this country. I mean, we waste and waste and waste food. So this is a suggestion. Paul said, God's not giving you things in this dispensation to look at. He wants you to say he's good when you don't have anything at all to look at. So 
at the end of Paul's ministry, at the first part of Paul's ministry, while he was dealing with those Jews born under a law contract to whom God was giving signs, they could send handkerchiefs from Paul's body to those people through the mail. <laughs> Courier they didn't have, I don't think they had the USPS then, John. Uh, couriers would take these handkerchiefs to people and they'd be healed. And how many people were healed according to the word of God? Everyone. In fact, they would walk, if Peter went, they wanted to just be, just put me down, lay me down in the street here so the shadow of Peter might pass over me and I'll be healed. But what does Paul tell Timothy? And Timothy was, you know, one of the latter books from Paul. What did Paul tell Timothy? Oh, you'll get your healing, Timothy. Never mind. Sit down and wait. The hanky's in the mail. What did he say? Drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine oft infirmities. He left Trophimus sick at Miletum. He didn't heal him. But that power was in force while God was dealing with the nation under a law contract. And he promised them that if they could perform physically as they had sworn they could perform according to that law contract, he would bless them with physical things. And he would curse them the same way. They'd have physical blessings. They'd have physical spankings. But the apostle of grace, the apostle of Gentiles said, Things have changed. This dispensation, if you, if ye have heard, Paul said, if ye have heard of the dispensation, the economy of grace that God's committed to me for you Gentiles, most haven't heard it. Most are going back to the Bible and willy-nilly picking something out and say, that's God's word to me. This is, this is to us. This is for us. But it's not all written about us. What part is written about the economy of grace? Paul's epistles, Roman to Philemon. And, of course, the Jewish people who learned Paul's message could then write to the Jewish people, and we see Hebrews through Revelation. And so, um, not a suggestion. We're walking by, by faith and not by sight. This is how God's dealing with you today. Look at how he dealt with Israel in time past. Thou shalt speak all that I command thee. This is what he was telling Moses to tell the nation Israel under a law contract. And Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh that he send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply, what? My signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. God dealt with Israel according to signs and wonders. And he did, how did he harden Pharaoh's heart? Now, most of you here probably have heard me say this before and you know it, but I might might need to explain it. He didn't say, I'm going to cause you not to believe, Pharaoh. I know you want to believe. You're doing everything you can to take me at my word, but I'm going to cause you not to believe. I'm going to harden your heart. He did so by working through Pharaoh's sin nature. And the way he did so would be like, I explain it like a trail ride on a horse. You know, the horse behind follows the tail of the horse in front and they just walk along. I've been on trail rides where they say you have to Give him a little kick because he doesn't want to go. He wants to stop and eat the grass, so give him a little kick. But sometimes, and especially if you have an untrained horse, and you're riding that horse away from the barn, everything's fine. But then when you turn around and head toward the barn, what's the horse want to do? He doesn't want to just meander to the barn. Sometimes he wants to head to that barn because that's where the saddle's coming off, the blanket's coming off, the sweet feed bucket is there. He wants to head to the barn. And that's the part that scared me because I thought I was going to get thrown off a horse if he was running. I'd been thrown off a couple of horses. I didn't want to get on another horse. And so God knew that if he gave Pharaoh a command, and this is why he gave Israel the law contract. He never gave them the law to show them how to be good. He gave them the law to prove to them when it comes to performance perfection, which my righteousness demands, you'll never measure up to who I am by way of your actions, your behavior, your performance, your commitment 
to do or your commitment to abstain from doing. You'll never measure up to who I am. He gave Israel to the law so that sin would abate or that so sin would abound. He gave Israel the law because he knew how the sin nature would respond to a commandment. Don't. And what's the sin nature say? Why not? After all, who are you to tell me what I can do and what I can't do and what I should or shouldn't do? I think I'll do it. And then we justify ourselves for why we've done it. But the reality is God gave Israel a law to prove to them you cannot keep it. You've got to cast yourselves upon who I am. You've got to rely upon me and not anything about the flesh. How much confidence did Paul say he put in his flesh? No confidence in his flesh. Not a little wee bit here and there. No confidence in his flesh. And so that's what God wants us to do. He didn't save us by our performance. He didn't save us and tell us, now if you perform, I'll stay with you. Mm -mm. He's joined us to his son the moment we took him at his word concerning what his son did where our sins were concerned that we couldn't do through a million lifetimes of trial and error, trial and effort. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. All God told Pharaoh was let my people go. And what did God know Pharaoh's sin nature would do with that? It'd rebel. So every time God gave Pharaoh a commandment, Pharaoh's sin nature jumped into action, and Pharaoh said no. That's how God hardened his heart. Uh, And so God knew how it, and God knew how Israel's hearts would respond to the law of Moses. They knew that when the law said don't, Israel's hearts, their sin nature hearts would say, why not? I think I will. And that's how he did it. And you could look at the thing of the diet. You can't eat this. This is something, it's taboo. You cannot eat it. And what are you most hungry for the next day? What your diet said you cannot have. It's just it's just in man's mind. So he's going to multiply his signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them, so did they. And the Lord spake to Moses. Here it is. And unto Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you. Then thou shalt say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. Look at what what God's doing. And Moses and Aaron went unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord had commanded. God dealt with Israel according to signs and wonders. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a Wow, this is a real miracle here, but the power source isn't God. The power source is Satan. Look how he counterfeits God's miracle. Because he said, I'm going to be just like the Most High God. Watch him counterfeit a miracle from God. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt, not magicians as we know it, sleight of hand and illusion. The magicians, the sorcerers of Egypt, they also did in like manner as Aaron and Moses with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod and they became serpents. That's the miraculous. That's the miraculous. But in this dispensation of the grace of God, we're running out of time where we could go further and we will go further maybe next week. In the dispensation of the grace of God, we're not walking by sight. We're to walk by faith and simply take God at his word through the apostle of the Gentiles. The apostle to whom God committed the economy that many pastors call the age of grace, the dispensation of grace. God is working differently today. So when we see or hear about the miraculous, if Satan wants to be exactly like the Most High God, not different from, 
So much so that he's going to indwell an anti or false Christ who's going to be empowered by the indwelling Satan just as Christ came with all authority and power. Satan's going to indwell this false Christ and, and as time draws on, you're going to be hearing more and more and more uh, until, until we're caught up out of here about the miraculous taking place here and there and there and, uh, and everybody flocking to get their miracle when God has given us the grace today to endure whatever we face from without. And that's another study. But let's close it there today and we'll pick it up here next week. And uh, thank you for coming and let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your love for us that, that your son died in our place, taking our punishment upon himself. And you now want to join us to your son, and that takes place the moment we take you at your word concerning what your son accomplished at Calvary, how easy you've made it, and how difficult the pride nature wants it to be as we come up with formulas and ways to do what you've already done. We just thank you so much for that. We thank you that you do all the saving. We do only all the believing that Christ accomplished at Calvary. Uh, We thank you for your word and for the fact that that word uh, enforces our inner being and gives us the strength. It fortifies us mentally so that we can withstand uh, the pressures and the things that take place in this world, knowing that this life is not all there is. We're simply passing through. We just thank you. Uh, for your word now, and I thank you for these folks who've come out to share their morning with me as we open your word and study it. Uh, We thank you for all things. What a wonderful God you are and what a marvelous Savior we serve, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.